0: Welcome everybody. Thank you for joining us today. We're here to discuss data protection under GDPR with Linda Tialova, Privacy Council Lead at OneTrust and Preston Buketi, Senior Compliance Attorney at Intelep Pier, as well as Carmi Bogo, VP of Business Development at Hub Security. Uh, we'll start our webinar today with a brief introduction to our speakers and then I'll hand over the stage to Carmi Um, to say a few words. At the end, we'll hold a short Q&A to wrap everything up. I'm joined now by Linda Tialova. Thank
1: you so much, Tony, and thank you so much uh, for having me. Uh, So my name is Linda. I'm a Privacy Council lead with a software company which is called OneTrust. What we do is that we help businesses operationalize and manage privacy, security, and uh, compliance risks. So a lot of things that hopefully put together, help the business build Uh, sort of ethics and trust type of relationship with everyone involved and my role with the company is that I'm responsible for privacy compliance internally but more importantly my team is also helping to build the content into the software platform like templates and guidance to help businesses comply with the GDPR and the privacy side of things but also other things like security and risks tracking but yeah so
0: this is me I guess in a nutshell
1: thank you so much for having me
0: Great, welcome Linda, we're happy that you could join us. And we're also joined by Preston Bucati. Preston, do you want to give a quick introduction?
2: Yeah, thank you, thank you. So uh, my name is Preston Bucati, I am a compliance attorney for a company here in the States called Intellipier, and we are uh, in the business of telecommunications. So SMS, text messaging, phone calls, phone routing. Uh, In fact, you know, when you dial into Zoom and call phone numbers, uh, there are companies like ours that route them all behind the scenes and make sure you dial into the right spot, and also trying to help with uh, a lot of the robocalls and spam that people get nowadays. Um, so, our you know, as you can imagine, our business privacy is very important not only in the transferring of information uh, across jurisdictions, but also that personal aspect of people's messages, their communications, um, and so it's it's a business to business. It's not quite as, you know, we're, we're not Facebook, but we are engaged in a lot of personal data. And so this compliance stuff is is of the utmost importance and we're trying to stay on top of the evolving regulations in this space. So I'm, I'm excited to talk more about this because I know I have a lot of thoughts.
0: Great, thank you Preston. And we're, we're really happy that you could be here as well. Uh, Carmi, do you wanna do a quick introduction?
3: Yes, um, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm like the rest of the panelists. And I guess uh, data compliance is covered by regulations and standards, which I hope the, the esteemed colleagues on the panel will be able to deal with that. A hub, te- hub hub uh, security provides technology that helps people enforce and protect data protection. So, you know, we're sort of about rolling up your sleeves and getting the protection done versus you know the 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 paperwork or the standards part of it, and we do help companies comply with the standards. You can't really comply without the technology. So I'm very also excited about uh, this panel, and uh, I think that uh, you said we will open it up. So normally when we open up, we have a few presentations, but I really don't have anything to present because we said that we were going to do this as a Q and A session. So I'm gonna go right over to Sterni and say, Sterni, start firing away with your questions.
0: Great, thank you, Carmi. So yeah, we're going to have a bit of an open discussion today. I'll throw you guys some questions. Feel free to jump jump in and uh, give your two cents. And we'll also leave some time at the end for Q&A. So if anyone in our audience has questions throughout the discussion, you can drop them the Q&A. We'll try to answer them maybe as we go, but we'll mostly get to uh, some of them at the end as well. So don't be shy and um, feel free to engage. Um, so I guess I'll just start with our first question uh, that I wanted to, to, to ask you guys, which is what are some of the newer privacy laws out there globally and how are they different from the current GDPR laws that exist? Right. Shall I maybe start?
1: And then I think I'm sure Preston will have a lot to say about that as well. So I guess from like a, point of view, very, very broad point of view. The privacy laws are right now quite a big topic pretty much globally. I think what GDPR has started was this sort of massive privacy wave where we are suddenly seeing most of the states respond in one way or another by either upping their levels of privacy laws or even like going out to actually embrace a comprehensive privacy law so the example of state that just like turned around and came up with a privacy law would be California the CCPA and also in the future the CPRA are really interesting take on privacy because they're slightly different from the GDPR actually quite different from the GDPR in a few concepts so Uh, California in specifics, I think one if I were to highlight one thing that is really different as opposed to the GDPR, it would be the idea that you actually have a certain value almost, monetary value, which is assigned to your personal data. And you actually have the ability to sort of enforce that value as an individual. And so you have the right to uh, opt out of reselling of your personal data. So if you give your personal data to some business and they then go on to resell it to other businesses for marketing purposes and whatnot, you actually have the way to say no to it. And optionally, you can actually say, yes, I want my data resold. And it is sort of expected that there is going to be some sort of tit for tat, some sort of um, payback from the company in terms of maybe offering you like a premium type of service if you say yes to the sharing of your data and you basically getting something back in return for your personal data sharing. So I found that concept really interesting, something we're not really seeing with the GDPR, but uh, obviously there are. Plethora of privacy laws out there that are just popping up. And most of them, I would say, are sort of built around the blueprint of the GDPR. So, particularly, let's say in Brazil, the new LGPD law is very much like the GDPR, but maybe like compressed into instead of like 300 pages, you're looking at 60 pages but definitely a lot of inspiration around uh, the world from the GDPR which I think is good in a way because it doesn't put you in a spot where you have to do things completely different based on which jurisdiction you're based in but there's always going to be those nuances and the changes between one state to another and the way they interpret these things like the way they interpret specific rights so I think that's where the devil lies really in the detail with these global privacy laws. But I'll be really curious to hear Preston and maybe his take on some interesting, significant privacy laws out there.
2: (laughs) So Linda's right, I I, I have a lot of thoughts and I would agree a lot with what she said. I I think what's been interesting here in the States is, um, and not to make it too political, but since our recent change of administration, I think there is more of an opportunity for lawmakers to pursue regulation in this space um you know the previous administration claimed to be a little more business friendly whereas i think uh this one would be more in favor of consumer protection and that's really where the u.s has come from this topic um you know this the ccpa is is mirrored off the gdpr i think there's even a lot of language that has been lifted straight out and the ccpa is serving here as sort of like the groundwork for what other states are doing Because you know, hey, if it works in one state and nobody complains too much and then maybe it will work elsewhere. Uh, But to that end, obviously here in the states, we've got all different cultures and peoples. So um, new states are coming out with laws. I was reading this morning, there's something like 20 US states that have proposed legislation in this space. I know that Virginia recently passed one that is similar to the CCPA. Uh, One of the, the big differences is that it would allow people to opt out of targeted advertising. Uh, specifically, it says targeted advertising. So I know that's throwing my marketing department for a loop. Um, and, and then the other interesting one I've seen, right? There's other states. I was reading this morning about Florida and Washington and Texas, but there's one that's going through in Oklahoma. And the interesting thing about that is it would potentially require consent to collect data uh, and not just sensitive data, not just that's one of six legal basis. It's, you would need consent to, to collect and process data. So it's been kind of interesting, I think, in the states because I, I think we have taken a stripped down version of the CCPA and now there's all these laboratories in, in each state coming up with their own slightly modified version to see which one is best. Um, and the, the, the thing I will leave everyone with is uh, last year before the pandemic and we were all locked down, I was uh, lucky enough to attend an event hosted here in Denver Colorado, where I live, the state attorney general was having a small business event to try to facilitate uh, business input on these laws. And I, my opinion is that they are trying to see if businesses or industry will find a solution. I, I, I feel like our governments don't want to set the rules. They sort of want to set guidelines and let people figure it out. So it's, it's, a, it's a little bit more of a struggle. There's not as much clear guidance. There's not as much help from regulators like the CNIL or the ICO or others. Uh, so I, I consider us a couple of years behind, but we're, we're catching up and we're figuring it out.
0: Thanks guys, and uh, thanks to both of you. What do you think are some of the legal issues, because we have a lot of lawyers in our audience right now, uh, what do you think are some of the legal issues to consider when thinking about these various laws?
1: Definitely there are so many. I, I just wonder which ones to begin with, but very often what we find is something that Preston mentioned there earlier the idea around like what is your basis for processing the personal data? Why are you actually supposed to hold on to the data? As Preston mentioned, sometimes it would be like the states and the laws almost fixating on the idea that you always have to have a consent from the individual for for basically handling their data in one way or another, which is not always that convenient. Sometimes it would be just the idea that you need to give them some information about the processing, but the fact that you need it either to, I don't know, sell them something or to fulfill your own obligation in one way or another would be enough. So there would be the difference in like the legislation's perception of how you're supposed to actually handle the data, why that is. Also, um, I think some of the key issues uh, around it would be the idea that we still have some sort of unclear or divided view between the US and the rest of the world almost Around what is sensitive data? So for the U.S., it, it would very often be the data that is involved in identity theft, so the data that allows you to basically steal someone's identity—your I don't know, passport number, social security, and so on. Whereas uh, the European perception of sensitive data or special categories of data, as is the new term under the GDPR, would be uh, the situation where it would be the data which really could harm you even emotionally or as a person, as an individual, if stolen. So it could be your um, sexual orientation or information about your medical state. So things which are not necessarily translatable into identity theft. So that sheer differentiation between these things could be an issue on the practical side of things where businesses actually have to treat the data differently under those laws. And if you're operating globally, you're basically looking at two different buckets of data, but you have to treat them in a very specific manner. So those would be some things, but I'm sure Preston, you have uh, ideas around what would be some other issues uh, that come up with these privacy
2: laws? Yeah, yeah. No, thank you, Linda. And I, and I would say I'll, I'll kind of give my perspective on stuff I've been thinking about. Um, wh- one of the things that's very kind of top of mind here in the States is we, we've, you know, as a nation been going through this discussion around uh, racial issues and equity. And to that end, a, a lot of businesses are working to uh, facilitate diversity and inclusion, and which is a great thing, but that also kind of to Linda's point just now involves collecting a lot of sensitive data around race, religion, sexual orientation, uh, and, it, and it's been very interesting to see a global business try to approach this, uh, you know, maybe may a human issue, but as you can imagine, these topics are very culturally dependent, and so when I'm asking employees in Germany to give me their religion, they're not very excited to do that, right? Um, and then on the flip side, you know, th- there's all those, so, so that's been an interesting thing to work through, and I think that drives me towards this, this development in U.S. law where I am seeing states start to carve out, uh, much like the GDPR, a difference between sensitive or, or critical data and then the more normal stuff. And my impression is that U.S. law so far it is going down this route of, you know, hey, if you're processing data for normal stuff, uh, you know, for example, employee administration, um, that, that is not really what we're worried about, and so you see exemptions like that appear in laws like the CCPA, where it says it's explicitly not directed at uh, employees or business-to-business relationships, it's really more business-to-consumer. Uh, you're seeing laws like the New York Shield Act say, hey, there is a set of rules that apply to personal data, and there is a separate, more stringent set of rules that apply to sensitive data. Uh, and, and the thing that's interesting is where is that line, right? Uh, some people think geolocation is not sensitive. Would you let me follow you around all day, every day for a week? So, you know, it, it, there's we're seeing different uh, states approach that differently. Like, I think I was reading this morning that Texas, uh, their their proposed legislation would, would maybe uh, require consent in order to collect geolocation, whereas that is not an issue in California. And, and then the last thing that's top of mind, uh, you know, dragging over from last summer, is the shrimp's issue and international transfers. Um, I'm curious to see where this conversation goes because, uh, again, with our change in administration, I think we will have better international relations, or at least that's the hope. Um, And whereas under the previous administration, I don't know if that was going to happen. So it's it's, it's this approach from my perspective of, hey, different countries are recognizing the economic, military, business, They're recognizing the value of their data and they're saying, hey, we can't just send this all over the world. We need to protect it, secure it, know where it goes. And so my question is, how do we do that as as a global society? Do we all agree to the same rules, uh, which is complicated and difficult, or do we have separate internets, right? If you're in China, do you not have access to the same websites that you would in Czechoslovakia, right, or Connecticut? So those are all things that I, I know we've been thinking about. It's just this managing of, how do you deal with the, all these different laws at the local level with a broader compliance paradigm, because at the end of the day, we all use the Internet and we often all use it quite similarly. So, you know, like I was tell people a good password is a good password it doesn't matter what language it's in. So we're all trying to find out what is good privacy and what data is worth protecting and and what data can and should be shared
0: definitely and i want to get curry's input on the uh, security aspect of all this but before before we jump to him i wanted to to ask you guys how has the gdpr set the tone for international privacy law and are and we can see maybe other other countries are copying it but in what ways
1: right maybe let me just sort of answer that by Piggybacking on what uh, Preston has said around the data transfers, because I found that really interesting. I think what the GDPR has really set the tone for is the idea around we are not going to let just every state get the data outside the EU. We need to set some sort of boundaries around what can and cannot be done in terms of uh, taking the data for the state's surveillance purposes. So every time we sort of transfer the data outside, is sort of implicitly safe zone of the EU slash EEA area, or uh, basically that sort of internal market, we need to make sure that the data has some sort of, excuse me, some sort of protection. And I think what is really interesting with this is that the GDPR literally set the tone around what is the level of protection. And they almost like created, started creating this club of adequate countries where you can transfer the data and have it flow very, very freely uh, without any additional safeguards. And that's, they used to be also the US under the privacy shields to an extent. So now that one is away. And it seems like what the EU has built is almost this idea of a political race to set your tone for what is supposed to be safe country, what you can or cannot do with the personal data, how your surveillance is allowed to access the data or not. So I think what we might be seeing down the line, except for just the copycat content of the privacy laws, is also the political element of it, where the states might start to build their own islands or clubs of fellow states where the data would be flowing freely. So it's not the idea that we would have a situation where the data being completely localized in one state but i'm kind of thinking personally that we might see the idea of a few legal regimes like with the clubs of states sort of being surrounded uh, globally so that's that's what i see the gdpr really bringing to the table maybe on the more i don't know geopolitical perspective i think
2: i think for me i i I see a lot of the um controller processor distinction right like to me the the GDPR has sort of outlined the contractual relationship between companies and that that to me i think is going to be the interesting thing in the u.s because i think a lot of law in this area will come about through litigation and ultimately that will be you know hey party a had a data breach party b is in front of the regulators who's got to pay the bill and that will come down to contracts and dpas so similarly right like you think of the eu model contract clauses uh that that's another thing that to me has really solidified this relationship of who is importing data who is exporting and what are the primary responsibilities right Um, again california's law virginia's new law they're all following in that model in the sense of one party is a data controller. It's the party that determines the purposes and means of processing. And then the other ones are service providers. They're processors. And so in turn, some people have a lot of compliance obligations directly with data subjects, and others are more that, that back-end business uh, you know, kind of connection. So I, I think that's what's been interesting. Certainly a lot of uh, countries copying similar language, right? Like you've seen that Brazil, I think it's LGPD uh, quite similar. And again, right, if you're a nerd like me and you read these U.S. regulations, they're just copying and pasting from the GDPR. It's almost like, man, they, I don't know how, it just, it just seems sometimes it's like, wow, it takes them months to write this. But I'm like, I think you just copied the GDPR. What took so long? So it's, it's interesting to see that. And I'm curious to know where that goes, because uh, for the most part, that's been very easy, right? One party has data and they give it to someone else. But what about those more complicated situations where there's a joint controller model I think that's where like I'm still looking to the EU because I I don't feel that many of the organizations I've worked with here like have thought through that they're just sort of thinking linearly there's party A then party B but what if you both use the data for kind of your own uses how do you split liability so I know I'm anxiously awaiting the, the new updates to the model contract clauses and the, the business obligations around that, right? Indemnities, li- liability, and all that kind of, the, the more boring lawyerly stuff, but it's it's the expensive stuff if you ever have to go to a courtroom.
0: Definitely, and I wanted to get Carmi's take on on this. Is complying with standards enough to protect confidential data?
3: My view is, well, in general, standards are normally the lowest common denominator agreed upon by a bunch of bureaucrats and lawyers. That's how you get a standard. Uh, You don't go to the best technologist and say, how do we protect this stuff? That's just not the way it works. So if you look at where a standard comes from, and by the way, it has to be agreed upon. I'm not judging it negatively by saying that it is the lowest common denominator. For people to agree, you need to hit an agreement, which in many cases is the lowest common denominator, that they'll all agree to and agree to enforce so standards are the stuff that you have to have and you know to comply and obviously if 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 your service provider doesn't comply with the standard then in my view they're not giving you the minimal amount of protection but to answer the question is that the maximum amount of protection no it, it by far it is not near enough, um, certainly to protect the finance, you know, it, it could be enough to keep you from getting sued, but it's not enough to protect your data. The, the interesting thing is that the Washington Post said that in 2020, over $1 trillion of, 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 uh, were stolen, or that's the event of hacking, $1 trillion. And that's an estimate, it's a very rough estimate. And so, obviously, our company is here to not only help you comply with the standards, but help you get much further than the standards. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about, it was actually a case that Preston just alluded to, which is sharing of your data between providers. You know, um, we if you take your medical records obviously those things need to be kept completely under control so if you took a an mri in a hospital you would want to make sure that a person approves that that mri only stays in that hospital and only gets used when you want to use it but if you want medical uh, the the medicine to progress you'd like to do machine learning and data processing on that data so you can get better medicine so that you don't get you know so medicine can go forward and only that you'd like hospital a and hospital b to be able to share your mri and still comply so that you can get a better data set um because i don't know if it's clear to all the lawyers on the on the call but the more data you have from machine learning the better the results and so the more you let The service providers who collected your confidential data share it confidentially and securely in order to enable better machine learning, the better it is for humanity. So this is the type of technology that we actually provide. We provide technology that lets um, companies or hospitals stay HIPAA compliant and yet share their data to enable better machine learning. This is the type of areas that we go into. So, you know, so back to the beginning, the standards enough, no, you have to comply with standards. And our job is to help you comply with standards and to stop standards from inhibiting advancements in data processing where they could be useful.
0: I wanna piggyback off of uh, what you guys, uh, the last point that uh, you guys were just uh, discussing Um, regarding business approach to data sharing and also regarding the differences um, within different jurisdictions. So how do we rationalize the business approach when it comes to compliance between uh, different jurisdictions around the world?
1: Right, maybe um, if I can jump in and obviously I know uh, Preston and Carmi might, might be able to follow as well. So I would actually echo Uh, Carmi mentioned there that the standards can be helpful because they provide you this sort of common denominator for what is mandated. It's obviously not the best in terms of like the best that you can get, but it's the type of thing that I love how Carmi summarizes it is the thing that will prevent you from going to court. So I think the standard is actually a really good way of looking at it also from the privacy perspective. So there are actually uh, some standards already out there which build on the privacy common denominator across the jurisdictions. So one of them would be ISO 27701, which is the extension to the security operations one to the 27001. So for that one, I think it's actually a really good one to sort of start with because it is, tailored to be closely aligned to the GDPR. And it is looking at uh, your compliance and operations through the lens of security, but it's adding that privacy layer to it. So you can sort of start with it as your sort of global standard, and then you can sort of stack it up against the jurisdictions and the laws where you're operating. And you're just going to be sort of focusing on the odd things which don't really align. So it's not going to be a situation where you have to start building your privacy program from the ground up every jurisdiction that you go in. But let's say for Brazil, as Preston mentioned, it is a carbon copy of uh, the GDPR. Same thing for CCPA. There are many commonalities with the GDPR and also by extension with the standard, uh, the privacy standard. So this way, I would say being able to capture what is common versus what is different, being able to track that and uh, potentially if you translate it into that sort of risk uh language assign risks assign risk mitigation plans assign people who are responsible for mitigating these things and and tracking those risks over time that is in my head sort of a good way of tracking these things and tackling globally uh the privacy challenges and just one more thing i really like what Carmi said with the standards and needing to build beyond that i think Privacy has exactly the same mentality, so you could have those standards, and once you're sort of on par with what is needed based on those standards, you can build beyond that, and that's what's actually called privacy by design. And based on what uh, Carmi has been describing with the product, uh, the hub security product, that is literally what we're aiming for as well, being able to build something that ensures that the data is private and that the privacy considerations and individuals' rights are taken into uh, every step of what you're dealing with with the product and the operations. So the idea behind let's make sure that the data is confidential; only the right people have access, only to the certain scope of the data. That's literally privacy by design. So I think there are actually many common commonalities between security and privacy there as well that you can build them as well.
3: My my comment is, you know, uh, before COVID, we used to travel. I used to I used to travel a lot. And uh, for those of you who used to travel to different countries, you try to plug your laptop into the wall, and it didn't plug in. Uh, Why didn't it plug in? Shouldn't there be a standard for how to connect the computer to the wall? I mean, shouldn't plugs just be plugs? And the answer is they should be, but they're not. Countries are different. America even decides it's not 220; it's going to be 110. Why? That because we can. And so, while it would be really helpful if more and and more countries could come up with the same standards, the reality is is that different countries and different countries and even different applications will require different levels of protection. To adhere to their standards, and so back to my travel thing, I used to have a little adapter. I used to take out my little bot, you know, unzip something, and then use an adapter to plug my uh, European coming from Israel power cord into the wall. And everywhere in the world that worked pretty good. In England, it was this huge plug. My God, I have no idea why, why they're so big. But anyway, but it used to work. And the key word there is not that the British plug is big. The keyword is an adapter. And in hub security, we've actually built um, a data control adapter. Um, in technology, you call these access rules or policy engines. And we have an engine that allows you to define the policy that which gives you access to your data. And we don't build it with a rigid policy because we realize that n- not everybody has the same policy, not everybody has the same rules and not all data is equal. Certain data needs more protection than other data. Certain data like Preston alluded to might not be available like a German might not give you their religion. That was his example. And so you need all kinds of adapters. Technology needs to provide the bridge or the gap to cover all the differences in the regulations and in the policies of all the different types of applications, but yet let this work together. The only comment I didn't like was you might have two internets. I really don't think that that's the answer. I think that the answer is one internet, where the corporations adapt their data and their technology to meet the regulations of the countries that they're dealing with. And so that they give the right answer in the right place, but they don't have, but, but it's all out of the same internet with as much commonality as you can possibly provide. In, in this situation
2: and, and I would agree with it with everything everyone said and, and I actually I go back to Carmi's point about standards and, and he's absolutely right that they are the lowest common denominator and it, and it's not that it's a bad thing but think about how laws are made right and Carmi I, I love your analogy I'm, I'm big on analogies myself and so mine I always tell people imagine it's 100 years ago and cars are a brand new thing Nobody knows how to drive them. People are getting in accidents. They're crazy expensive. People are getting hurt. Well, now, 100 years later, if I get in an accident, I can take a picture on my phone. I send it. And 30 minutes later, they can tell me who's at fault. The reason that happens is when something is introduced to society, uh, good or bad, we we kind of figure out what to do with it, right? Uh, and, And we play with it. And we determine how can it benefit us? How can it harm us? And over time, people start to decide, well, these bad things, we, we don't want to do that. Um, and so to Carmi's point, that's where the lowest common denominator comes from. It's trying to set a standard that's sort of one size fits all. because governments, frankly, don't have the time to listen to every single individual case and all of the specific circumstances. So going back to cars, right? I don't care if you're driving a Ferrari or a Fiat. You need to go a reasonable speed you need to have an airbag, you need to have a seatbelt. Is that going to save your life? But it's gonna do pretty good, right? And so to Carmi's point uh, and to Linda's too, there are these commonalities around these laws. I, I think uh, everybody around the world can agree there's certain data that, that we are more sensitive to. Uh, we we wanna understand why are companies collecting our data? What are they doing with it? Are they protecting it? Doesn't seem like it. Um, and so there there is a lowest common denominator, at least in my opinion, right now, uh, to to comply with these laws around the world, right? You need to have a privacy policy that puts people on notice about what you do. You need to give people access. You need to honor data subject rights. But then to again, to Carmi's point, you need to adapt that for the local nuances because every country has reached this point differently because of cultural backgrounds and the way things have developed, right? Similar to cars, different countries have different cars. Some countries drive on different sides of the road. And you to Carmi's point again, hey, in the United States, we do things different from everybody else just because we like to be difficult. So I think what we have to find when we talk about a global compliance strategy, in what I've seen a lot of companies do is take a risk-based approach, right? They're looking at money They're looking at exposure. They're looking at customer inquiries. And which jurisdiction do we need to focus on now? I I, I think that's kind of all you can do at the moment. But to Carmi's point and and to Linda's, it's beneficial to think about those commonalities between the laws. Find that common standard and make that your program. And then start to think about the adapters you would need to make things work based on that. Because the only thing I can guarantee in this space is that I think laws will continue to evolve. I'd say we still got 20 more years of figuring out what is data privacy. And so there's gonna be more regulation in this space. The rules are gonna change. And if you're focusing rule by rule, you're gonna spend all your time doing that. Whereas you can try to find a global strategy And then improve on it from there with those principles of privacy by design, you know, bolstering your security and all of that kind of thing. Because I've seen a lot of small companies go through this regulation by regulation. And it's it takes a lot of time and money for them because they're not thinking about it as a global phenomenon. They're just thinking about it's some new rule that I have to deal with. And I, I go back to my analogy, it's like car safety or food safety. This, the, the internet is a beautiful thing. It's given us a lot of great advantages, but now we're starting to learn that we need to control it in certain ways. And so everybody around the world is just deciding the proper way to do that. And, and then, so the last thing I'll say to, to Carmi's point earlier, and I think it was mine, it, it, I think everybody around the world needs to think long and hard about where do we wanna be 20 years from now, because if the United States, for example, buries its head in the sand and says, well, we won't honor data subject rights in Europe, as an example, uh, we could find countries diverging. And so I think it's beneficial for global leaders to sit down and think about what is this common standard to Carmi's point, can we find a plug that would work for everybody? Because again, we all use the internet, we all have data, we all have names and birthdays and family members and medical information. And a lot of people don't really like giving that up for no reason. So I think the past 10, 15 years, companies like Facebook and Google have made a lot of money on this data. And now we're seeing governments start to rein it in just like any other industry, right? First couple of years is crazy. And then the regulations come down to make it safer, better, more productive and more protective. So we're just trying to figure out what is that standard? And whoever can guess first, you might be able to, to get some competitive advantage by saving time and energy and handling this stuff now, as opposed to every six months.
0: Right. How can we rein in the wild west of data data collection? It's a good question. I want to ask one final question, but I've I also think we're running on our last fifteen minutes, so I would like to leave time for Q and A. So maybe we just keep our responses a bit short, so um, we have enough time. Uh, so my final question would be: How do you? guys think you can sell the idea of privacy to business stakeholders right like you said there's companies like google and facebook whose whole business model is built on uh, data collection um so how do you advocate for privacy awareness and for privacy resources within companies i'll take a shot at it and let's see uh if if
1: preston and Carmi can can correct my course i would say uh let's let's really start paying attention to what happens if if you're not privacy compliant and i think the underlying theme is that you lose the trust of your business partners you lose the trust of your customers potentially of your employees so i think if the businesses aim for success they need to consider privacy and and Obviously, I hate the argument of fear mongering and saying, oh, you're going to get fined because it might not necessarily happen, but it might, what might literally happen is the fact that you mess up because you were not paying attention to privacy. Very similar to, I think, potential issues when you don't pay attention to security. Very, very similar, uh, I think, line of thought there. So I would almost argue that to make the case for privacy, let, let's really pay attention to how we make the case for cyber and how we make the case for boosting our uh, I would say, posture from security perspective. And I think very, very similar arguments could be made for privacy without necessarily just the fear mongering with the fines. But yes, the fines do happen under the GDPR. They are large. I I, I don't want to understate it, but yeah, that would be, that would be my argument
3: i think it's progress for humans um gmail when it came out was really cool it was free and if you read the ula of gmail it said we read your emails That's it said we read your emails google didn't hide it they said they we read them and everybody has a gmail account okay human beings at that time said email's free it works no limit oh, who cares if they read my emails let's just go You fast forward to about two months ago, Facebook said, we're going to change the way we deal with your WhatsApp data. And the amount of users on Signal went up by like 200 million. Okay. So I think that the best way for businesses to enforce privacy is along with their other security is because it's going to be good for business. Okay, you know, and um, businesses adapt to things that are good for business. I would say that all things being equal, we are now moving away from that Gmail, Google reads my email and I don't care to Facebook. No, you can't change your data. I'm gonna go move over to another platform if you decide to switch. And so I think that that trend is becoming more prevalent. People again realize What can happen to them if their data is not private and so the regulations help the fines help but businesses by far are driven by their consumers always that's the best driver for all businesses and i'm i was very pleased to see although elon musk got the signal to the wrong company forget it it's really weird he actually the wrong stock went up but that doesn't really matter but the, still, the the signal to noise, which I'm sorry to use that pun, was fine. It worked. And so I think that humans, uh, we, us, we're all paying more attention to it. And along with protecting the money, see, the other thing about the privacy and where we come into the picture is that your revenue and your network and your data, then you need good crypto tools to protect your business. You might as well use the same tools to protect the privacy, because it's good for business anyway. And the, and there's really very little extra
2: cost involved. Well, I would agree with those points, if, if I can jump in, Trini. Um And I'll say this, right? So I agree with Linda. Like, in my job, I'm not a sales guy. I'm a lawyer. So usually I'm grumpy, and I say no. And that's our job, is to come in and scare you, right? So I can show lists of fines. Uh, and then the next thing I usually always get asked is, what are the chances that will happen to me? And that's where I kind of pivot more to to Linda and Carmi's point is it's about a question of what type of company do you want to be? These laws are coming, whether you like it or not. And so you can either spend time and money chasing after the fact, uh, rolling the dice that you'll never have a data breach, never get caught, never have to go tell your customers, never have to tell a regulator, or you can just try to do the right thing. And that's what I always tell people. It's like, hey... Uh, there's a chance we might not get caught. It might be pretty high, but it's not the right thing to do. And how would you feel if we did get caught? And to Carmi's point, especially, I I think that's where I drive this argument home, especially in the states. I find when the GDPR first came out, uh, a lot of organizations here were very much like, hey, what are they going to do if I violate the law? and i had a lot of arguments with people about international treaties and how this would be enforced but at the end of the day if your customers don't trust your platform if users don't want to put data in your system how are you going to make any money and that's the other thing too i tried to tell business leaders is hey think about this data as a as an asset in the financial sense it's valuable to us so we don't want to lose it we don't want to give it away and, and what's more is we are we are under an obligation to protect it. If we do not, it, it would be the same thing as if we admitted that someone broke into our office and stole our computers, or broke into the parking garage and stole all of our cars, or broke into the warehouse and stole all the phones. At a certain point, people would stop doing business with you, right? And, and I, I think presumably everybody on the call has seen some of that start to creep up, right? Apple is big. in. In in driving home how privacy is a differentiating factor for them right, you could get a Google phone if you want. Or you know use apple and they net they're never going to look at your data so so that's what I I to, to Cormie's point I think people can use this as a selling point a brand tool to build trust. And even if privacy is not core to your business it's something that your business partners will care about because they don't want to be dragged into litigation or in the news. So it's ultimately about being a responsible company in the 21st century, to me, in my opinion.
0: Right. And for many, the reputational risk is simply just not worth it. Um, but I'd like to, to quickly move on to Q&A, because we don't have much time left. So thank, thank you both, Linda and Preston. And of course, thank you, Carmi. This was a super fascinating and relevant discussion. And I'm glad that we got the time to cover it today. Um, I have some questions here from our attendees. And let's try to keep the responses to around two minutes each. But um, this is a question for Preston. How did last summer um, EU Court of Justice invalidation of the EU-US Privacy Shield impact the regulatory burden for companies which need to transfer EU personal data to the US? And I can paste the question in the chat so um, everybody has a chance to see it.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I'd say the first thing was the practical implications of just simply switching to this model contract clauses, right? So if if you had previously relied on Privacy Shield, you needed to go get all your contracts and update them with new language. Not terribly complicated, right? That's just a bunch of word documents. Uh, but the bigger thing is the continued guidance coming out from the EU around uh, you know these risk analysis around the transfers and whether data can be intercepted. So to me, it is a lot of companies just went ahead and said, well, we'll sign model contract clauses and that's it, but there's a bit more to it, right? And and you have to be able to demonstrate you've done that risk analysis, is there adequate protection in the country you're in? Um, And I think that's something a lot of US businesses are waiting for more guidance on, because again, hopefully with our change in administration, maybe we'll see a new privacy shield or, or or, an easier way, because a lot of people, I think, are sort of saying, let's wait and see, which again, uh, not a great approach in my opinion, but it's an approach that people sometimes take.
0: Thanks. Um, and I have another question here. Hello, everyone. My name is Cortez. and I'm a law student in the US. I was wondering how successful privacy protection laws can be uh, if people, how, how successful, excuse me, how successful privacy protection laws can be if people do not fully understand privacy concerns or what rights they should have regarding their data. Do you all think that there uh, should be a mindset mindset shift um, that is necessary for changing privacy laws to be most successful? And I know that this is definitely also a cultural issue. I mean, I know here in the EU, I'm, I'm here in Germany, but I grew up in the US and uh, it's definitely much more relaxed uh, culture around sharing your data um, with online platforms and businesses. So what would you guys, um, what, what would you say about this and your response to Mrs. Cortez?
1: Maybe just to echo your point there, Cerny, I think this is so culturally ingrained issue. So especially in Germany, I think the history has really um, affected the way people perceive, uh, especially surveillance. So anything to do with surveillance in Germany, I think has been really impacting the overall public's perception and everyone is sort of on the lookout for anything that might be uh, potentially sort of going down that route and everyone is very vigilant about it. Europe in general, I think we have had that experience of being surveilled, Uh, at least part of Europe uh, to a degree. So I think we are a bit more um, paranoid almost to a point about the data processing going sort of in the wrong direction. With that said, I think that it also goes on with how people are tech savvy. How do they actually realize data might be used because the first argument i always hear from someone would be well actually i don't care if someone reads my emails there's nothing in it but then again as you go on to realize how the data actually might be combined and used against you even if you're not necessarily plotting a terrorist attack that's what might be an issue interestingly uh for example in united arab emirates or sort of middle east people don't really have the concept of personal data, it's fairly new to them. So they're very much on a different boat in terms of that journey. So culturally, very, very important. And I think as we sort of uh, globalize the society, it is getting to a point where everyone is having that raised awareness around what's happening with their data. So absolutely, I agree with uh, this sort of notion and the question that Having that awareness definitely helps with getting privacy on the map, with businesses as well as regulators getting more bandwidth for enforcement.
0: Right, and I just like to add something small to that. Um, is that I, I like to ask uh, my friends, you know, what level of discomfort do you have um, with the so are you phone number? Are you okay with someone on your email? And usually people are, you know, they say, okay, I'm fine with that. But what about your home address? And what about your social security number? What about your health records? And then they kind of get a feeling and an understanding of um the different levels of um of, of privacy invasion that exist uh with data protection and data data privacy in general. Um Preston, did you want to add something?
2: Yes, yeah, sure. So I, I love this question and I would say I I think like I am I'm very radical in this opinion. I I I think there there needs to be some kind of Shift in the US. Um, to, to Linda's point, it, it, and certainly to yours as well, like th- there is a cultural difference. And part of my suspicion is that here in the States, um, you know, we've, we've got this concept of, of personal liberty and, and your, your own individual. And the best way I can describe this is, um, you know, sometimes there are court cases around cyberbullying. And Historically, that has not succeeded in the United States because juries will basically say, well, hey, if you put naked pictures on the internet, that was your fault. Not that your boyfriend took it and sent it to the news. That wasn't, you know, but it was, you shouldn't have done that. So there, there is this onus of, if you put data on the internet, that's your choice, it's your fault. Uh, and and I think to to the question from Cortez is, I don't know if there is that level of technical literacy where people really appreciate just how much they are freely giving up. Um, I, I am one of those uber paranoid people. I'm the jerk in the grocery store that's like, why do you need my email? I've got cash, you've got food, let's do it. Um, and, and I was hoping, you know, I, my, brother has, my brother is an IT person and he was telling me, it's just gonna take one 15 year old kid to hack the president's email and then this whole thing will change. Um, and so I, I think that's that's kind of, you know, as everyone was saying that we for for whatever reason in the United States, we just haven't appreciated the risk. Maybe it's just our historical experience or the cultural approach, but I would like to see more people be more careful of their data, how they use it. And what I always find is, you know, I'm a geek on this it, it, when you show people how easy it is to find that data. Some people get freaked out. Uh, and my, my classic example, if you ever have a customer service issue, don't call the 1-800 number find the CEO's home phone number it's pretty easy to find on the internet you call them you leave them a voicemail problem gets solved like that and that's that's what's crazy to me i'm like you're the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company and it took me 10 minutes to find your home address but it would have taken me two hours to talk to customer service how like how wild is that so i i I don't know how Carmia or others feel but i'm i'm very much i'm to the point now where i might have to start lining my walls with aluminum foil or something because I get scared about how much data is out there and all my passwords are hacked and I'm just thankful I'm not very rich because my identity is not worth stealing.
0: Right. I mean, as Carmi would say, it's not a matter of of um of of uh of if it's a matter of when. Um
3: Yeah, I just want to say what Carmi was gonna say, I guess because technology got us here and technology can get us out. Um Yay. you know, one of the I don't personally advise you try to live in a Faraday cage, it's not going to work, And uh, so forget it, that, that's not it. The, the thing I want to bring about privacy and technology is actually a story, and I'm going to tell it from Israel, is that we had some problems in the news where nursery school uh, children were being abused by the, the the staff, and so the parents immediately said, let's put cameras in all the nursery schools. So we can record because these are two-year-olds and they can't talk to us now obviously putting cameras on children with access to the internet is not really something that you want to do from a privacy point of view that's like it's up to your you know number one no-no of things you really shouldn't do it's like put babies live 24 7 on on the internet but on the other hand the, the pain was they can't report it and we have to get these criminals and they can't talk and and so Technology solved the problem. They put the cameras, but they had stringent secure controls on the access to the data. And therefore, the parents got what they wanted, but we don't have live streaming cameras where everybody can see what's going on in nursery schools. And so I use this as an example where the content for sure, no matter what your culture, is something that you want to have controlled. in this case. In fact, it's not a question of convincing you that these videos should be controlled. Almost anybody would agree that this is material that needs to be controlled. But on the other hand, certain as technology goes forward, we want to use it to give us more value. We don't wanna have stigmatized children being beat up by their caregiver in their nursery school. And if we can stop it with technology, we're gonna do that. And so that's where companies like us and many others commit to sort of bridge the gap between keeping your privacy private, but allowing technology to advance, to um, do and help our lives become better, okay? You know, whether it's cameras in almost every place. I think London, downtown London, you're totally under camera surveillance all the time. Um, But the access to these cameras seems to be controlled enough so that it the pain is worth the game uh, if it gets hacked you know that there's there's issues like that so i think that's where we 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 need to keep being i vil- uh, keep our vigilant about making sure people realize their privacy making sure people know that it's their data and that the, and offering them the ability to control access to their data so that um, it doesn't get exposed to the wrong people.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a whole other discussion if the pain is worth the gain for um, yeah, for monitoring people in public spaces. Um, but uh, I think we have to wrap up here and thank you everyone for joining us today. And thank you to our speakers, Linda and Preston. Thank you, Carmi. And we hope that you're all staying safe and healthy at home. And we look forward to hosting many more webinars like these. So. Uh, To get in touch also with today's speakers, by the way, feel free to reach out to them directly. I'm sure they'll be happy to answer any of your questions. All of today's attendees will be receiving an email in the coming days with the contact information for each of our panelists. So don't be afraid to reach out, drop them a line um, if you have any questions on uh, further questions on any of today's topics and stay up to date on Hub Security's upcoming webinars. You can follow us on LinkedIn or also on Twitter. And you can also check out our weekly medium on our weekly digest on Medium. Um, thank you everybody again for joining us and thank you to our speakers. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much, Learning.
1: Bye.
2: Thank you for having us.